0: Good evening, and welcome to Tuesday Topics. This is Paul Edwards. I am so glad to be back with everybody this evening, and it is my pleasure to welcome as my guest this evening, Miss Sarah Conrad, who is a member of the American Council of the Blind uh, Board, who is president of CCLVI, which is the Council of Citizens for Low Vision, and who is also the holder of an interesting job And I think that's where I'd like to start, Sarah. Tell me about your job.
1: Absolutely. Hi, Paul. Thank you so much for having me on your show tonight. Um, So I wear several hats in my work, um, but I'm an attorney um, through training, and part of my training um, was as a patient advocate. Um, So I hold my patient advocacy certificate from University of Wisconsin Law School, and um, I worked for a while for the Center for Patient Partnerships there. It's a a program that serves patients all around the world. I had clients all around the world who were particularly facing life-threatening illnesses. And then I also worked with their caregivers, families, friends, um, and things like that. And um, now that I'm in sort of the real job world outside of law school, I do work in government policy. um, And I have focused people in poverty um, people facing trauma, domestic violence and other, um, other concerns. So using my patient advocacy lens in all of my advocacy work.
0: So I forgot to mention something else. You also are, um, I think, operating at the center of our, of our cancer calls with ACB. Is that right?
1: That's right. I'm a cancer survivor. Um, and so I was asked to, do community calls. Um, We have them every other week, every other Thursday. Um, We just had one last Thursday, and we've had some really great talks, um, not only for cancer survivors, but also for caregivers or people who are close with um, cancer survivors or cancer patients.
0: So let's get into some of the issues that surround um, blind folks. I I think there are a lot of us who have had experience of being blind people whose Partners or parents or others have been ill um, when we've had to try to interact uh, with hospitals and other institutions and I think one of the issues uh, that many of many of us have found is that hospitals aren't always very careful about understanding the needs of uh, people who are blind um, do, you, do you think a that's true and b do you think that um, it's exacerbated by the pandemic
1: I definitely think that's true and I do think um, in a pandemic situation um, that problem can increase particularly because of the hurried nature uh, of pandemic medicine um, Hospitals are always very very busy places medical staff are always busy people but if if you've heard on the news any clips of hospitals these days they're just constant. Um, and so I think, I think that hurried nature definitely increases this problem, particularly for the disability community.
0: Well, I know that, that I had my experiences with a spouse who passed away who was also blind. And one of the, one of the issues that came out of that were a number of resolutions from ACB uh, that spoke to what we could do about making things better. And one of the issues that we focused on was whether when, when hospitals uh, were going for uh, certification or for, uh, or, or for being uh, accredited as hospitals, um, could we get more included on how people with disabilities are treated in the hospital situation, some of those accreditation components? What do you think?
1: I think that's a great idea, and I think that's a good start. So overall, um, training and practice within hospitals, hospitals um, that would help the current staff that's there, and it could also help sort of shape the, the general culture of how medical staff work with people with disabilities. Of course, mainly people who are blind and visually impaired, but I, I would imagine that other disability groups are also concerned about some of these other issues. I would say um, but I would I would take it a step further and consider um, new doctors, new nurses, nurses, aides, anyone who is training to be in the medical community. And it's certainly not just people in medical school. You're going to see a nurse's aide a lot more often than you're going to see a doctor if you're staying in a hospital. And so um, educating the current staff and the new staff and, and changing that culture, I think it needs to be an all-inclusive uh, exercise.
0: So. How, how would you move that process forward?
1: Well, I I would be very curious about, um, and this is my own lack of knowledge, I would be very curious about hospitals um, or medical schools or other training facilities that maybe are doing a good job of this. Um, I've seen um, both very positive experiences and very negative experiences. And I don't know if that's because of training or if that's because of the personalities. Um, So for example, I I have doctors that are wonderful at including me in conversations and um, asking me questions about how they can make information more accessible. And and I would love to know, is that their training or are they just people with compassion and empathy and they want to be fully inclusive? Um, So I think it would be very interesting first to um, kind of evaluate what's going well, what's not going well. We know the main problem, but um, I think drawing some best practices certainly to just get the ball rolling would be great. Um, And, but I I definitely think that whether um, we, as the blindness community wanted to design trainings or whether we, you know, wanted to work with um, medical training teams, um, to do those things, I, I really think a big collaboration would be very helpful. Um, I think getting all the stakeholders at the table. It, it seems to me that uh, any inclusive training uh, would be fairly accepted. We're seeing in all types of work and industry uh, a, a bigger push for equity and inclusion uh, trainings and professional development um, and so I think just getting the right people together, um, I don't have a one size fits all solution by any means. Um, but there's, there's smart people in, both in the medical field and in, in our field in, in disability. And so putting those experts together, I think could be really, really powerful.
0: I've done some training in two or three hospitals in the South Florida area um based on my experiences there and and because I was pushy and and something of a puke while I was there um which is okay mm-hmm. uh, i i I don't have a problem being a puke but um the 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 net result was that that there was an openness to training i think uh, on the part of the hospitals and and you were able to persuade people um to 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 uh to take part in training but but, I think it's very little, and I, I guess well and and, and and probably doesn't last very long unless unless we can create some kind of an infrastructure that that's why I keep thinking mm-hmm. that the accreditation process really right. is the place where where if we can, we ought to try to build some kind of requirements uh, that there be checkoffs, that there be regular trainings that consumer organizations be involved in those trainings that sure. a range of disabilities be included um, that some of the machines and the facilities in the hospitals are uh, w- will actually be made accessible as well because I think that's the other issue that that very often uh, especially with the development of some of these fancy new hospitals a lot of the equipment where patients do have some control is becoming increasingly inaccessible.
1: Absolutely. And I think putting, you know, some of those uh, requirements on hospitals um, and perhaps on medical schools, maybe for accreditation as well. Um, I, I don't think that's a new idea. Um, for example, you um, as an attorney, um, I have to take a certain number um, of classes about domestic violence training, right? So um, different communities with different issues are already um, getting these these um, training requirements enforced in different areas. So I don't think that idea is new. Um, and I, I certainly think uh, that that would have more more accountability rather than a one-time training.
0: All right. So we're about probably three or four minutes away from opening things up rick so the the next area that i would like to talk about uh, a a little bit more sarah is how would you what would you say a blind person ought to do um in in order to get ready to go to the hospital in 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 a pandemic environment what are the steps that you would represent that recommend that person take
1: absolutely um So whether or not the blind person is the patient or, or, you know, going with someone as a caregiver, I think, um, certainly access to information is, is power. Um, and so I would certainly research the hospital in your area. Every hospital is going to have different protocol during this time. Um, (coughs) a lot of them have sort of curbside check-in, but not all of them. And as, 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 different states or different counties reopen, uh, that can definitely look different. There might be requirements about where you can stand and where you can't stand if you need to be wearing a mask or not. So um, being as prepared as possible is great. And if there's, if there's a problem with the accessibility of the hospital's website, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um, that's something that should be looked into. But in in the immediate situation, um, contacting the hospital um, by phone, um, to ask questions what what should I expect upon arrival, um, is is very important, uh, because in the hurried nature, um, it's possible that someone uh, working for the hospital could come off as as rude or or not not being very inclusive right. of the person with disabilities, and and they probably don't mean it. They're just very stressed. It's a very difficult situation. Um, but I would say be prepared to be your own advocate, whether it's you know regarding this pandemic or um, even just routine appointments, you know, we have to advocate for ourselves. I found being a patient advocate was great. I loved advocating for my clients. However, my goal was not to always be their advocate. My goal was to empower them to learn how to ask questions, to demand that the um, the medical staff talk directly to them, even if they had disabilities. Right? You have to be part of your care, especially in a hurried, fast pace uh, situation. And and really, if you're if you're heading to the hospital um, with potentially having COVID. it's probably nearing a life or death situation or, or could within the next day or two. And so um, you want to make sure you get all the information. You want to make sure that if someone's with you, that's great. If they're not, that there's, there's a good emergency contact. There's someone um, that can also be part of your care if you're not able to make those decisions. Um, But I think just being your own advocate and um, if something's wrong, if, if you feel like you are not, Uh, having that connection and you feel like it's disability related or something totally different, you have to speak up. And I I wish that um, I wish that that wasn't on all of us as people with disabilities and and as patients. But um, unfortunately, especially in this time we have to be the ones to speak up.
0: Do you think there's any advantage in trying to reach out over the heads of admissions and ask to speak to the patient advocate right away?
1: Uh, I certainly think it depends on, on where you are. If you're in a, an emergency situation, you might not be able to. But yes, yeah, so um, hospitals have patient advocates who are available. Um, there's also independent patient advocacy services that are not connected with a hospital, which, which may be helpful um, depending on the situation. But absolutely, I would say if you have time, if you're not in an emergency situation, um, I, I certainly think even just calling ahead of time you you can call uh, most hops, hospitals have an extension that you can call and talk to a patient advocate right away you could let them know some of the things that you will need um, in order to access something have their number in your cell phone um, that sort of thing absolutely
0: so one last question and then we'll probably open it up one of the things that hospitals now require and I suspect even more in the in in the pandemic are are things like living wills and a and a clear stipulation of power of attorney and that kind of thing Um, how do you recommend that people who are blind deal with that
1: um yeah so i definitely think this is this is a big reality check for people to um to have have a will um whether you're going to talk to an attorney or whether you're going to fill out something online i think it's very important um I think this this dose of reality um, is is big for people of all ages and all health conditions because this virus is attacking people quickly and it can get real bad real fast without any warning. And I don't say that to scare anyone, but just to give an honest check that, um, you know, being prepared is not only great for you and for you. for your peace of mind, but it's also very helpful for the people that love you and that will um, need to take care of things. um, If something, God forbid, if something happens. And so um, I would also say, you know, if you have any um, religious feelings about, you know, DNRs or um, if you have um, concerns about wanting to be an organ donor or not, right? Like these are all things that, uh, unfortunately or not, we need to be thinking about right now. And so, yes, I would, I would certainly encourage, um, there are several types of wills or just, um, plans, um, depending on, you know, the assets that you have and and how things would be um, distributed. But I I encourage you to reach out. There's also several, um, nonprofits that will, will help with wills, um, sometimes that at no cost or little cost to um, people with disabilities. So um, I would certainly encourage you to to reach out to those. I know I'm, I'm trying to pressure my own parents. It's time to get a will, not because I think that they're, you know, going to get the virus, but um, if something happens uh, as their attorney daughter, I'm, I'm pushing. So
0: <laughs> Good, good, good. Yes. So we've talked about DNR, and that mm-hmm. stands for do not resuscitate. Do you want to talk about that for just a sec?
1: Sure, Um, and it could be a a religious reason or or it could just be a personal decision. Um, And and I'd hate to get all morbid, but this is, again, an honest, real time. Um, And and that um, is something that you can sign if you don't want to have um, some life-saving measures. Obviously, a doctor's job is to keep you alive and keep you well, but if you don't want um, technology keeping you alive if something happened, but you don't just have to sign yes or no. Right. So you could, you could put a stipulation of, um, I don't want to be uh, resuscitated beyond a week or 30 days or, or whatever. Um, and, and again, sometimes it's a religious thing. Sometimes it's a personal thing. Um, I encourage you to, um, to research that on your own and just do some honest thinking. There's, there's no right or wrong answer. And it's, it, it, it's your decision. It's not. You don't want to necessarily put that decision on a caregiver, a family member, a friend, or someone else to make that decision for you. And so I would encourage you to make that decision and, and make sure if there is someone who would be your caregiver, your, your power of attorney, or, or whoever, make sure they know your wishes. Uh, even if they don't agree with them, it's important for them to know, give them a heads up.
0: Do you think before you go into the hospital you should uh, give someone power of attorney?
1: Uh, I would tend to say yes. Um I mean it, it, it's totally up to you, but yeah, I, I don't think it's necessarily a bad idea to have someone um in mind. I mean, it depends on probably your your situation if you're if your family already kind of has that line, oh, for me, my parents would make those decisions. But, but I do think it's um, you know, helpful to consider, okay, well, what if something happened to my parents and to me? Who would make decisions um, and that kind of a thing? So, um, while I think it's good to you know, figure out all these things for yourself, I, I, I really think it's helpful to talk to the people closest to you as well.
0: Excellent. Mr. Rick? Yes, sir. We have Mr. Bob Hache, Bob from Massachusetts.
2: Yeah, I want to put in a shameless plug first for Sarah's uh, cancer support calls. I'm a cancer survivor. It's been a wonderful outlet for me They're on every other Thursday. Keep an eye on the schedule. Um, I wanted to talk about what it's like, though, to be a blind caregiver, because that was what mm-hmm. was on the topic. And my concern is really for my wife, because she's one of these people, and I love her dearly, but she's not a very good advocate for herself. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this stuff now with COVID, A, she needs a knee replacement. Uh, She's in a lot of pain, and they consider that elective. But with the amount of pain she's in, I'm starting to wonder how elective that gets to be. But the more immediate concern gets to be she's supposed to have a consult next Tuesday. And I noticed, for example, in my chemo place where I go, they don't want us to have bring anybody in with us unless we really, really need somebody to help us do something specific and we have to tell them what they need them to do. And I'm just really concerned that they're going to tell her that she has to go in there by herself without me and that I won't be able to accompany her because of, you know, COVID restrictions. And if there's anything I might be able to do about that, um, you know, possibly attend either via speakerphone, maybe I would consider that or any other way to, you know, accommodate their needs. But Mm -hmm. I also want to make sure that her needs are getting met.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great point. And thanks for the plug for the cancer calls. Bob has been a great participant in those. Um, yeah, you know, that's a really difficult situation because um, a lot of times when they're limiting the number of people, it's, it's not just to keep the staff safe or, or the patient safe, it's to keep you safe. Um, I love that you're already thinking about ways that you could participate without being physically there. Um, I think being proactive, um, whether it's sending a my chart to the doctor, uh, my chart or uh, whatever um, online way you have to connect with a care provider, or giving the clinic a call, um, it, you can you can certainly ask you know ahead of time to know would it be appropriate for me as her caregiver to be present, um, and and I. I is your wife blind or sighted? Are you? She's sighted. She's sighted. She's okay. Just, she's yeah. just
2: not a very good advocate for herself. I think a lot of people aren't, especially
1: oh, know, yeah. with
2: doctors. And she. And the other thing I worry about is if she does, you know, get to go in soon, which she probably won't. But will I be able to visit her in the hospital? Is she going to just be stuck in there all by herself, with not anybody able to come and to visit her? that be a right. situation.
1: Right. Well, these are certainly questions that you'd want to ask the specific clinic or, or hospital, mm-hmm. um, even the specific doctors. Um, and I I think it's always appropriate to say, you know, I am my wife's advocate. I mean, you don't need a, a certificate to be someone's advocate. Um, they can say no um, because of You know these restrictions, but then you know then you've got some tricks up your sleeve. Okay, please call me on speakerphone so I can be part of this, or please video chat with me. You know via whatever. I think hospitals are increasingly uh, willing to include family that way. Um, It's it's just that physical presence, Um, and they if if they know anything about your medical background, I would also say that they could be concerned. Um, about you getting sick while in children. They probably
2: would be actually
1: to be honest with you because it's a chemo <laughs> situation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 But but so I so just call ahead. hack. The other, and, yeah. the other go ahead, Paul, question
0: sorry. the the other question that, that 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 I would at least propose to you is I think your wife needs to be pretty assertive and at least say to folks, I, I don't I don't want to go ahead with this without Bob here because he helps me a lot.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yep, that's a
0: good point. Thanks, Paul. Yep. Mr. Rick? Yeah, Paul, we got phone number 5829.
4: 5829. Yes, hi. This is Peter Altro from Columbia, Missouri. Um, Sarah, I first want to thank you for the work you're doing. It's I know it's really important, and I know it's especially important now. Uh, and so thank you, and, and thank you for taking time to talk to us. I want to first react to um, Bob's comment. Um, when my dad was was dying. um uh, I was in D.C., he was in New York City, and we had to make a tough medical decision, and they called me, uh, as the person who was working with him, and, uh, it was one of the, one of the most difficult phone calls I ever had to make, but it really did clarify things for everybody involved. And so, uh, Bob, if, uh, they won't allow you in there, I certainly would encourage a speakerphone thing. It really worked in a very powerful way for me, uh, and, uh, so I would just encourage you to think about that. The the other thing I wanted to say is, as one who's been working in the diversity and inclusion arena for quite a while, but not in a healthcare setting, um, one of the things that's coming out more and more is that this sort of sensitivity training that's taking place is, for the most part, being discouraged. And the reason it's being discouraged is because it's it's sending a sort of you're bad and I'm good mentality a lot of this training and so it has its merits but it only seems to be relevant if the people really can see the value beforehand uh and that's one of the reasons they're 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 discouraging volu- uh, 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 vol uh not uh, involuntarily trained everybody has to go through it it just mm-hmm. it, it, it 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 mutes the purpose the other thing I wanted to say is um what seems to, be, in my experience, I uh, my wife was in the Mayo Clinic for a lot of complicated reasons, and I was there for a week to sort of support her, and we ran around from place to place, doctor to doctor. They were fabulous, absolutely fabulous. And I asked a couple of them, hey, have you had, have you had any disability training? Have you had anything? And they said, no, no, this is just the way we, we roll. And I, I think the, the moral of the story is, um, the way to sort of sell this is, if you these, there's a certain skill set, empathy being one of them, that um, um, that's really valuable for everybody. And if you have that skill set, uh, then you, you're, you're a little more likely to be able to be uh, more flexible about certain things. And it's also a cultural matter. You know, some hospitals are just better than others at addressing you know uh, unusual circumstances, and it has to do with the culture of the hospital. Mm-hmm. so um, yeah uh, self advocacy is really, really important, especially now, uh, but I would encourage us to sort of remember that this sort of, this, this sort of awareness training or whatever you want to call it has its real downside, and we should think very carefully before we we, do, we go in that direction
1: thanks peter yeah i I would agree there's um especially in inclusive training that um, airs on that side of privilege and bias, even though I think that those are very real problems. Um, a lot of people feel targeted in those conversations. They get uncomfortable and and they're the kind of trainings that you have to be uncomfortable for it to work. Um, but I do think trainings that are focused even on specific ways to uh, include people with disabilities in the discussion and sort of that bedside manner when you're working with people who are different from you. I certainly think there are other ways to, to work that in.
4: Okay. Debbie Grubb, please.
5: Hello. Um, I want to get, I want to get back to the self advocacy arena and I'll tell you why, as was the case with Paul with his dear sweet Gail. I was the wife of Freela Grubb and he had stage four cancer and I was his caregiver. And only once did I have to go to the wall because I tried to be as upbeat and friendly, but they were telling me that in order for him to stay at a cancer center place called Hope Lodge, that his training might have to be postponed until they could work that out. And I just said very quietly, not in this lifetime. And the wheels started rolling. So I think a lot of it is your own attitude if you come across as not angry from the beginning, so that if you do have to push something, you've got a place to start from. And the other thing I really wanted to ask you about was about these advocacy organizations, both the independent ones and the ones in the hospital, because after having been my husband's advocate, when he became too ill to be that for himself and nobody was better at taking care of himself and all of that than he was. But as he became more and more ill, he just was not able to do that. And I gradually stepped up to the plate as I felt he needed more and more from me. But now, you know, I'm by myself in the world, which is Mm -hmm. okay. Lots of people are, but what I was curious about Sarah is, for example, suppose I knew I was going to have to have a surgery and during that whole process i was going to be too ill to advocate for myself for a period of time what kind of action plan while a person still can think and you know make decisions and call the shots how would you work with one of these self advocacy things if these people that advocate for you during the time when you're too ill to do it for yourself and how does all that work and what kind of
1: a planning would be done i think that might be helpful to many thank you absolutely thank you debbie um just to um, touch on your first point about you know not starting your advocacy with anger you're so right um just because you're gonna be an advocate doesn't mean you don't have to choose your battles right and 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 the level um that your advocacy is taking um so spot on really great um in terms of the advocacy process, so the role of the patient advocate is really to do anything within their scope of services to help the patient, patient thrive. So, um, sometimes that's a one-time issue. So for example, um, because I was in law school, I argued a lot of insurance appeals. Um, right. So that can come up after treatment, um, where there's, I I could go on and on and on about insurance companies and appeals, but, um, you know, so sometimes it's, it's a one time advocacy thing. Um, it definitely depends on the advocacy organization. So there are advocacy organizations like the Center for Patient Partnerships um, that's specifically for people with life threatening illnesses. Um, it, it's in Madison, Wisconsin, but it's open to people around the world. Um, you could find more information at patientpartnerships.org. Um, I just give a, a plug for them because I know they're wonderful but there are also a lot of um, private patient advocates um, the Center for patient partnerships is is a free service but they have some specific criteria because they're an nonprofit and, and they you know work on grants and donations but there are individuals who provide patient advocacy and um, I've worked with several of them throughout Micra, and and they're wonderful and the the nice thing about working with an individual or with a smaller um, organization is that they can probably tailor their services even more to your care. I think one of the biggest challenges that patients face is coordination of care. Because even if you're having a surgery, right, there's going to be pre-op and post-op, and there's going to be maybe a hospital stay, and there's going to be the preparation you need. And there's, I mean, the list could go on and on. And so having someone help coordinate that that is great. Um, Basically, the patient advocate is is at your service. So as long as it fits within their scope of services, which is usually outlined in a a contract um, that you sign with them about this is what we can offer you, this is what we can't offer you, um, for example, I will say a lot of patient advocates are not attorneys. So, if say um, you you went through the surgery, you had the whole plan, you followed through with that patient advocate, and then you had an insurance appeal that didn't go well, um, maybe that person couldn't litigate that for you, right? So there there's always things within a scope of services. Um, I would say in in terms of your game plan. So if you know you're going to have a, a surgery. Um, if, if you walked into a patient advocacy place like I worked, um, you would first have an intake. Um, and so we just kind of assess your situation and your needs. We would define what we could do and what we couldn't do. Um, I would definitely, um, as a patient advocate, go with you to appointments. If I was you know, physically in your location, I went to lots of appointments with people. Um, I was often the note taker. And I often brainstormed before any pre-op appointments, what are your questions? What do you need to know to feel comfortable? Um, I helped follow up with any other questions. I could be there during the procedure in the waiting room, perhaps maybe not as possible with the pandemic going on, but in general. So the patient advocate can either do one thing, two things, you know, these individual things for you, or they can walk you through that whole process. It it depends on their theirs. A statement of scope and your needs. Cool. Rick?
0: Okay, Paul, phone number 9833,
6: please. 9833. Hi, it's Alice. Um, and uh, first of all, I, I would just say that I usually am a pretty good advocate, but I'm here to tell you when I'm sick, I'm the worst. Um, and so and one of the things that I found necessary to do ahead of time was to get my primary doctor because he knows how much I hate going to the hospital um, just because of the fact that it seems like it's a constant battle because of my vision. Um, And one of the issues, main issues was, and this even happened with my brother in Indiana just recently when he had a stroke, but they don't don't put it anywhere. It used to be they would plaster it all on the wall and on your door, you know, that this is a blind person in here, Mm -hmm. so people would know. And now it's only you know, on the computer, quote unquote, on your chart, which is a problem because like when housekeeping comes in and like if they mop the floor and they don't tell you, they you know, like, they've mopped the floor and it's wet and you don't know. But the main issue is food. It, it just amazes me how the, they, you know, they bring in your tray, nobody tells you, they just set it down, they leave, they don't say anything. And especially like now with the virus, the staff, the hospital staff, nurses and doctors are more busy doing actual patient care and don't have the time. So I would say that you know, that becomes a problem because, like my brother's Trey, he said, sat for four hours, four mm-hmm. hours, and he couldn't get anybody, and he wasn't allowed to get up because of his stroke. He basically couldn't, couldn't move. And so it's a matter, I think, too, of not just training the medical staff, but anybody that's going to come into that room to work with you. And so what I do now is I told them, I said, I don't care about HIPAA, plaster it on the door. I want them to know that I'm blind so that they'll know not to just come in the room and not let me know that they've done something and that I'm not aware of what they've done. But, and, and with the virus now, the way it is, that's my biggest fear. And I'm, I'm definitely trying to avoid the hospital because like with my brother, they would not let anybody nobody was allowed to go in with him. Nobody was, so, you know, there he was, and, and nobody, and I I finally, I was going to call to, to uh, discuss with them the issue of just bringing his tray in and leaving it, not helping him to set that up, but luckily, they let him go home Mm -hmm. the next day, so (laughs) the problem resolved itself, but I think, you know, it's 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 hard when you're sick. I guess is my point to really truly advocate for yourself. I I mean, when I left insurance problems, that was no problem. I, you know, once I'm feeling better, I'll take them on if they've you know if I've got an issue with the insurance. But I think it's that time. You know, when you are really sick, and it's hard sometimes to to be able to speak up for yourself, and and, and it's made even harder by this virus now because you can't have anybody there with you
1: absolutely and that's why I think preparation is key so for you to um, you know know what you might need in that situation so if you're willing to waive some of those privacy rights um, and things like that um, communicating that maybe even to a primary care doctor or or someone that you know could help be your advocate if, if you're not able to um, the all, other thing you can do is communicate that to your caregivers that might be calling in to check on you um, they can't necessarily have someone waive your HIPAA rights, right? But they could, they could call, um, say, the nurse's station and say, now remember, you know, so-and-so is blind or visually impaired. Um, they may need X, Y, and Z, right? And so, um, yeah, in this rapidly changing environment, unfortunately, that's very difficult. And people are getting sick to the point where they can't advocate for themselves. Um, but that's just where I think being as prepared as possible is, is very helpful.
0: We knew in advance when Gail was going into the hospital for chemotherapy. And we actually prepared this huge poster mm. uh, that, 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 in effect, went in her room that said, you know, speak to the person when you, when you walk in and don't walk out without telling the person you're leaving because Perfect. There, there truly is nothing more frustrating, mm-hmm. I think, to a blind person who's not feeling well anyway that to to be talking to thin air, it it really is very disheartening. Yes. Mr. Rick. Yes, phone number 6821, please.
7: Hi, it's Margie Donovan from California. Hi, Margie. Hello. Hi. I love this topic. I um, have been on both ends of the hospital. I worked in the hospital. I've been a patient. And my significant other was just for, for COVID, a patient. And at least out here in California, in the non-HMO type hospitals, you don't get a doctor if you go in through urgent care, you get what's called a hospitalist. Okay. And my experience from having been in the hospital there and, and my significant other is the first thing they try to do is take you off some of your meds. And I cannot emphasize enough. And if you are going into the hospital for any reason at all, even if it's a knee surgery, you need to have someone there to be your advocate. As someone else said, it's hard to advocate when we are the patient. But had it not been for me in February when my significant other was in the hospital, he would literally be dead by now and um, they had taken him off of his meds and he was vomiting. They kept giving him pain pills and he wasn't holding it up. I don't need to go and waste the air time with all that. But one of the things I have found in advocating for patients is as soon as I say I've worked in the hospital, they take me a whole lot more seriously. Mm-hmm. My blindness <laughs> goes to the background. And in in that particular situation, Uh, I said, if the doctor doesn't call me by four o'clock, I will be up at the administrator's office. And those of you that know me know that I would be. And Mm -hmm. fortunately, the doctor called me. We got everything straightened out. And outside of the COVID time, I can't speak to the COVID time. But outside of it, when I had my knee replacements, I had no problems with having my partner, R.C., stay overnight in the hospital with me. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether you're on pain pills or you're very, very sick you still really need to have a patient advocate and um, be your own medical advocate. And it's different than what you do, Sarah, you need a friend, a family member, and I've actually offered to be patient advocates for um, friends of mine. And I, and you have to be willing to keep the best interest of the patient in mind. Um, and I, while you may not have the, all the answers, it was obvious to me that after 24 hours of of um, um, tachycardia and vomiting, that they had done the wrong thing. And I, I've been a patient advocate for blind people who've been in the hospital helping get their children out, and I cannot emphasize that. And I, I just want to talk about the signs. When I worked in the VA, we had the patient sign a document, that authorized the nursing staff or inpatient to post a sign on the door and above the bed. And it was very simple. You want it simple and straightforward. It said, blind patient, please introduce yourself. Mm -hmm. And that helped for the um, cleaning staff. When they walked in, they'd say, oh, it's just janitorial, you know, or something like that. And um, when I was in the hospital, I brought my own signs with me. And I, I really encourage people to make up your own sign, make it really simple. Don't give them a whole list of things. Um, talk directly to me type thing. And if they want you to sign a waiver, sign the waiver. But that ended up in my career being an excellent tool for veterans when they were in the hospital. And, you know, even if we're minimized because we're blind, um, if we just demonstrate a little bit of knowledge, it goes a long way when it comes to the medical field.
1: Good. Thanks, Thank Margie. Thank you. I do want to clarify uh, one welcome. thing. Yeah, I do want to Go clarify ahead. one thing. Um, you, you mentioned a hospitalist, so I'm not sure what their role is um, in the hospital that you're talking about. But in general, a hospitalist is still a physician. So I just want to make sure any listeners yes. are not not confused by that. They
0: are. Mm-hmm. Rick. Okay, Carrie.
3: Hi, this is a great topic. Um, I want to thank the other callers because a couple of my comments were already taken care of. So um, so I am wondering, well, two things at this point. One is, is there a way to be able to have somebody go in with me if I had to go into the hospital with, this, with the particular guidelines of nobody going in? Um, and my second thing is I have some friends who have a medically fragile minor child who's 14
2: Hmm.
3: um, and their fear, like he had the flu about a month ago, they did not want to bring him in the hospital because they've literally, um, you know, saved his life multiple times Hmm. in the hospital because, and they said, well, you know, one parent could be in, they have to leave. Then the other parent could come in and there's like a five to 10 minute window there. Um, So are there actions that they could take so that if something happened with, um, a medically fragile minor for both parents to be able to be
1: in? Those are great questions. Um, I'm sure it depends on the hospital. It depends on um, how the number of cases are going in their protocol. I would say to your first question about, could you, you know, as an adult have um, someone come with you? Um, if, if the hospital's protocol is no, I would guess um, that there would be very few exceptions to that only because they're then liable for your safety. Um, we're even seeing situations, um, not everywhere, but in certain States where um Domestic violence advocates can't even go into courtrooms with the the survivor or victim, which I have some opinions about, but right, there's, there's all of these protective measures to keep people safe. And I'm guessing in a hospital setting, it would be very difficult to, um, to find an exception. Um, again, that would be a, a situation where I think you would want to call ahead of time, even, even if you're healthy, right? Call to know um, how you could access that information. Um, I, I would think that they would just be concerned about your safety. Um, and in terms of uh, a minor child, I'm guessing that there are different rules for, um, for a minor. Um, I don't actually know because, it, it, again, it really depends on the hospital's protocol um, a lot of a lot of health departments in different states have all different roles for their hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can't necessarily speak specifically to your area. That's another situation where I think just calling the hospital directly, especially um, if they could get in touch with the pediatrics floor. Um, okay. I think that would be the most helpful. Right. Thank you. Is, Thanks, Gary. I
0: think there's going to be a, um, a kind of a transition as more and more elective surgeries are allowed in hospitals. And uh-huh. one of the things that that, that I think uh, is going to happen is uh, hospitals are likely to want to stick to the current situation because of the continuing existence of the pandemic. But I think as they're allowing more elective surgeries, I think we need to push the envelope. And if we really feel that we, that we need to be allowed in. I think we need to be more pushy. And the more elective surgeries that are back, the more hospitals appear to be operating normally, I think the more we should be pushy.
1: Oh, I agree. For elective surgeries, definitely. If you're going in with COVID, yeah. I guess would be the situation where they might not be able to... Right. To let you right. in, but yeah, for elective surgeries and and even brainstorm with them. Well, how could I keep myself safe? How can I ensure my safety if I'm there caring for my loved one? What waiting room? Because um, so, some some hospitals even have like um, waiting rooms where um, no infected people have come into. Right? There's there's different waiting rooms for different issues. So
0: yeah, right. Rick, yes, Christine, please.
8: Hello. Um, going back to the. Uh, premise when, um, when you were talking about how, what can we do to educate hospitals, mm-hmm. et cetera. One of the issues is that many people at hospitals think of patients as cases and not as people. Uh-huh. And um, therefore, if you present as a caregiver who is a blind person too, you fall into the case group for uh-huh. that person. Um, I found even in employment as a an employee of the Social Security Administration when I worked, um, people sort of boxed me in with my clients mm-hmm. or my claimants. Um, you're disabled, they're disabled, you're both not able to work. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, and that doesn't, you know, that never held water for me. But that kind of um, attitude, I think is one that has to be broken down. And I know that in all these inclusivity training kind of classes, they would be talking about being uh, able to recognize differences in people. And I would be sitting in the class with no handouts because they didn't take account of the fact oh. that, I, you know, that kind of thing. Yes. So if you don't, if you don't walk the walk, you certainly can't talk the talk.
1: Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's funny. Cool. I was actually in a, an equity and inclusion conversation recently, and I could not read the handouts either because they were in tiny little print. Um, and I think sometimes in that equity inclusion conversation, um, you know, we usually get the big ones like race and, and gender and, and other other huge issues that are absolutely issues that we need to be talking about in terms of inclusion. Um, disability has just, uh, it, in my perspective, from the trainings I've been in, it's just starting to be, uh, included into that conversation, which to me is silly. But um, I think, yeah, I, I think it all depends on the approach of that training. And, and I think you're exactly right that um, patients are people, caregivers are people, not cases.
4: Rick?
0: Yes, we've got Len, please.
8: I wanted to say that one of the things you did not mention Sarah, which I think is a you've been doing fantastic, and I really respect a lot of what you do, is advanced directives. Um, I had to get an advanced directive for my husband when he was dying, and uh, it is very hard to be a caregiver in a hospital. It just is, because Mm -hmm. they don't really respect you, and they wanted him to go into assisted living. I said, if you do that, he'll die in a week and I was able to take him home. But it was a very, very difficult thing to do because they wanted him to go into assisted living because one of the things that we haven't talked about is that they don't think blind people can take care of sick people and other blind people. Thank you.
0: Thank you, very Lynn. Paul Lewis. Hi,
8: Hi, Paul. Hi, Paul. Hi,
0: Sarah.
1: <laughs>
9: I want to mention to everybody that we have half of the advocacy committee for CCLVI on this call tonight.
1: Ah, Good
9: you're, you're part of that, Sarah.
1: I know I am.
9: <laughs> um, for those of you who are, may not know this, uh, about me, um, I've had my own major health issues. I'm a, uh, two-time, uh, transplant recipient for kidney and, uh, pancreas done it, uh, different times. So I've had my, um, definite times in the hospital, and I wanted to offer uh, some comments. In addition to uh, being very involved in the uh, blind organizations that I belong to, uh, I am also uh, heavily involved as uh, working for an uh, OPO as a volunteer, which is an organ procurement organization
2: mm-hmm. in their
9: public affairs stuff. Uh, Department, and in fact, I'm the only blind slash visually impaired volunteer in our uh, group that's uh, covers 16 counties in Florida. Uh, I wanted to mention uh, some things about a living will, which we also do when we uh, we go out and register people to become organ donors. Is and I think some people may have alluded to this is that. You should do this uh, way before you maybe, be, if you can make decisions for yourself yes. before you really get to a traffic, catastrophic situation. Uh, it's just a lot easier to deal with. And when you have, and especially if you're the patient, if you've already made those decisions, whether it's an organ donation or DNR or anything else, for the fact that they know that the hospital staff will know this at the beginning, and then you have it already prepared. It's a lot easier to, uh, deal with my first transplant operation. I had not, uh, done a living will and, uh, I would not be allowed to go into surgery until I, uh, signed the living will. So I, uh, filled that, uh, out. So it's, it's just a lot easier to do uh, before you actually get in there, especially if you're going in for surgery. And,
0: and you're often not feeling very well when you're in the hospital.
9: Right. But
0: it's, that, still, it's still scary. It's still scary to sign something like a living will without having read it all the way through.
2: Yeah. And, it,
0: and, and depending on the hospital, it can be a pretty long document. And, uh, and there I can also three. be some folks who are pretty impatient about reading it to you.
2: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: and, exactly. and so, you know, I think, it, I, I think what, what Paul is suggesting makes perfect sense. Yep,
1: absolutely. And a, lot of,
9: and a lot of times the living will are very, they may not be as long as a document because it's pretty, it's pretty simple in a lot of regards. You're basically just telling the hospital what you want for your health issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. has nothing to do with any other uh, type right. of work that you may right. be moving right. uh, right. forward. The other issue that I wanted to uh, talk about, and Sarah, I'd certainly uh, comment on this, mm-hmm. as, a, as working for a uh, uh, an, uh, group uh, uh, trying to register people for organ donation, we do a lot of tabling and education. And that includes a lot of cabling in the hospitals. And one of the things that I've tried to bring forward in the uh, chapters that I belong to is I like to try to get uh, beginning with our local chapters. And it can certainly you can move it up to the state and national level as well as you move it up to higher um, different types of avenues that you might uh, uh, market this is to go into the hospital, set up tables, and educate the specifically the staff uh, mm-hmm. there. Uh, have lit- have uh, literature that you could hand out to the people and talk to the nurses and uh, techs and even the uh, the cleaning crew and any type of hospital employee and make them aware of. What the issues are for uh, patients who are visually impaired and blind. And you could also extend it to other disabilities as well. Um, I agree very strongly with um, the uh, previous people who had mentioned putting uh, a sign on outside of the hospital room. Uh, those of us who've been in the hospital, if a patient is considered a uh, fall risk, mm-hmm. they mark that on the outside of the hospital room so people know how to handle that person you can do the same thing with uh someone visually impaired someone hearing impaired there are certain disabilities that are not as obvious to people because you can't see them if you see somebody is in a wheelchair that's kind of obvious Mm -hmm. but a lot of times even if we have our chains with us that may not be uh out there as much and if it's uh, a person who uses a guide dog uh there's a good possibility that guide dog will not be in the uh the uh room there mm-hmm. so
0: that would just be helpful and also Paul, that would, yeah. Paul, i'm gonna cut i'm gonna cut you off to give sarah a chance to respond sure. yeah. we're just about out of time
1: Thank you so much, Paul. I have two quick comments. Um, first, I love the idea of setting up a table, giving out information to people working at the hospital. I would encourage getting that information to hospital administrators as well because they can help disseminate that even further and maybe even consider that in, in additional um, Workshops or communications. The other thing um, I wanted to mention: we're talking so much about preparedness. Um, there is a really simple thing you can do. If um, I do, I only know about this with an iPhone, and I don't know about other phones, um, but you can have like an emergency health file, medical file um, that is accessible on your iPhone um, that someone can get to from your home screen. Um, if they they can click, there's an emergency button and they can see that um, without, you know, needing a a facial recognition or anything like that. So if you have any big concerns, um, you know, medical bracelets certainly, you know, are things that people might wear. Um, I personally have some pre-existing medical conditions from my cancer. And so I have them um, along with all the medications I'm taking, emergency contact information, things like that, on my iPhone and I, I, in my work ID badge when I'm actually in the office, not these days, um, I, have, I have something in my ID badge that says, please look at my iPhone for emergency information and everyone I work with knows that. So the more, um, the more ways you can be prepared, even just on your device, um, the better, but absolutely really great comments, Paul.
0: Sarah, thank you very much for being with us this evening. We really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, next week, Uh, I get a chance to talk to my friend Carl McCoy, uh, who just turned 94 and who introduced me to ACB. Uh, And two weeks from now, we're going to continue this topic, really, uh, with Deborah Kendrick, who has just published a book through National Braille Press that's available as a free download on uh, this topic that is how how ought blind people to interact with the medical community so please do join us over the next two weeks on tuesday topics thank you so much for being with us this evening thank you everyone and good night